Welcome to the Party Pal as part of the Osiris Media Group. Head over to OsirisPod.com and check out all the amazing podcasts they have to offer. They have a new one that is worth your time. It is called Undermine. It is a fish podcast, one that focuses on the early years of the band, their foundational period of the 1980s. The season will cover the band's early influences and songwriting, as well as the developing fan culture, the biggest concerts played in the decade, early festival-like shows, and initial travels outside of Vermont to spread the music. I checked out episode one the other day. It's a doozy for all music fans. Check it out. That's Undermine at OsirisPod.com. Today, Christian Neiden, one of our hosts over here, with the help, once again, of editor and culture journalist, Dante Campaglia. He's going to dive into the 1993 action comedy film Last Action Hero. So let's get this party started. Welcome to the party, pal. Today we're talking about Last Action Hero 1993. It's Arnold Schwarzenegger, directed by John McTiernan, and a, a send-up of action films that turned out to be not even the best send-up of action films or the best action film of 1993. We'll talk about that in a second. First, Dante Champaglia, welcome back. How you doing? Good. I'm always happy to be at a party, especially when I don't have to wear a mask. Indeed. I agree there. It's, it's the, the days we live in right now. Uh, one of the things I, uh, that's, that's, that's great about Welcome to the Party Pal is that the, the range of films that the, uh, we get to talk about on, on this podcast. And I'm just coming off talking with a uh, fellow Welcome to the Party Pal uh, host, Michael Michael Shields about uh, some films of about Eddie Bunker. Uh, Michael's talked about a whole range of television shows and uh, of, of all kinds of, of whether they're on the artier side or or yes even the action side. But one film, one genre that I have not yet talked about on this podcast are action films. And Last Action Hero is uh, if you're going to talk about action films of the 1980s. Uh, that are sent up by a film in the 1990s. Well, there's no better. There's no better film. Even though there were a couple of other films this very very same year of, uh, of 1993 that were doing the same thing. We'll talk about those as well in, in a little bit. But first, this is this is Arnold Schwarzenegger at his absolute peak, directed by probably his I'd say his favorite director uh, of his career thus far. Let's talk about Last Action Hero. Dante, what are your? Th- let's before we get to your the quality of the film here. Let's let's break down the the a little bit of the background and the plot of the film. Tell tell the listeners about Last, Last Action Hero. Yeah, sure. But first, you you think John McTiernan is his favorite director, not James Cameron? That's a good question. That's a good question. I I probably his second favorite. Okay. Uh, I don't want to give John I'll, McTiernan I'll go with too that. much credit. I don't. I really don't. No, want that's to. true. I I I. I you know what? I think James Cameron is, is definitely his favorite director. Uh, I think I'm just more fond. I think that's what I want to believe because I'm so fond of Predator. That's fair. And that, and I love Die know, Hard, so. but uh, 
reading about more about this movie and watching it again and reading John McTiernan talk about it and then knowing what John McTiernan went through later. Uh, not a lot of love here for John McTiernan, but we'll talk about that later, I'm sure. Um, Definitely. So, Last Action Hero, 1993, uh, written by Shane Black. Well, officially credited to Shane Black and his writing partner. And uh, based off of a story from Zach Penn and his writing partner, uh, there's a whole history of the screenplay that we'll get to in a second. But the, the gist of the movie is... It's the elevator pitch would be Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory meets Wizard of Oz meets Reverse Purple Rose of Cairo meets all the money Hollywood could back up into a movie into an incinerator and just everything got lit on fire. Uh, <laughs> it's it's uh, it's the the plot of the movie is there's a kid in New York. Uh, early Giuliani era in New York, so kind of scummy, kind of dangerous. And he finds retreat in this crumbling movie palace, which I think became the big Lowe's multiplex on 34th Street in, uh, in Times Square. Uh, he's friends with a crusty old projectionist. He goes to this movie theater to see his favorite movie series, Jack Slater, uh, particularly Jack Slater 3, which opens the movie, and it stars Arnold Schwarzenegger, as his character Jack Slater, who's kind of a extreme version of an action hero. So Jack Slater 4 is coming out. The projectionist has this magic ticket that Houdini gave him time, sometime in the past, and rips the ticket. Ticket becomes a opens this portal into the movie. Kid goes into the movie, interacts with the movie. Uh, hijinks ensue. Send-ups of action movies ensue. They go after a bad guy. Everything comes back into the real world. Hijinks ensue. Things go back into the movie. And then uh, two hours and ten minutes later, we're left wondering what we just saw. And it's it's really a blender of every Arnold Schwarzenegger movie up to that point. So there's Terminator. There's Commando. There's... I mean, name just name a movie up to that point. And it's in there. Terminator Two. Uh, it's loaded. It's loaded with cameos. Uh, at the beginning of the movie, the movie starts off with a scene from Jack Slater Three, and Tina Turner plays a uh, the mayor of L.A. It's like a blink and you miss it cameo. She never comes back again. Side note: It's her last movie role to date, so that's kind of interesting. Uh, yeah, and then there's uh, Sharon Stone playing her Basic Instinct character. There's Robert Patrick playing his Terminator 2 character. There's uh, Danny DeVito playing a cartoon cat. There's a black and white digitization of Humphrey Bogart. There's a rabbi. There's people in spandex and pleather and Angie Everhart and in-jokes about movies. One of my favorites is F. Mary Abraham plays a character within the movie, within the movie. And the kid from the real world when he's in the movie F. Mary Abraham plays friends with um, Jack Slater and the kid sees F. Mary Abraham and he says, Jack, don't trust him. He killed Mozart. And uh, and that's paid off later where the turns out F. Mary Abraham changes. He, he's a he's a bad guy. And uh, and Arnold Schwarzenegger, as Jack Slater in the movie, says, uh, he told me not to trust you. You killed Mozart. And he goes, Mo who? 
Zart. He goes, I, I killed a lot of people. And it's and and the the script is like really clever, but it's also too clever by half, and it also never commits to things, but then it overcommits to things, and it's a real reflection of the the kind of um, Frankenstein's monster that the script was, and uh, we'll come back to that in a second, I'm sure. But anyway, the the movie is kind of unlike anything that came before it, also kind of like everything that came before it, and ahead of its time and how meta it is, but also kind of retrograde and how just kind of 80s it is. Uh, and the interesting thing is this movie came out the week after Jurassic Park, and so it got buried by Jurassic Park for lots of reasons, but that um, creates this dynamic of the... It really does show you the where Hollywood was and changing the nature of what an action movie was or a big big budget summer blockbuster was in in the early 90s i like the fact also that a big budget blockbuster would make room to reference uh ingmar bergman's the seventh seal oh yeah that appearance by death that's true and, <laughs> which and, i think and that death character who, so who yeah played it the death death character is played from seventh seal in the last action hero comes out of the movie because the magic ticket lands on the ground by a, a theater playing the seventh seal and death comes out and he's played by ian mckellen and, yeah, and the movie is just loaded with this, with this kind of stuff, and it, it's it it, it costs like eighty five million dollars to make, and at the same time it looks really cheap, and you mm. and, and when I was rewatching it I thought, wait this movie cost I know Arnold is making a lot of money and you know he's the big star and but where did all this money go and then I remembered oh right it went to the promo budget which included putting Last Action Hero on a NASA rocket to blast that into space, which, by the way, never got off the ground or it got off the ground too late because of a glitch in the rocket. So <laughs> that's 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 some dark irony right yeah. there. Uh, not not uh, that's not portentous at all for the, the fate of this film. Uh, you know that you mentioned before the Frankenstein's monster kind of uh way this mom- this film was put together specifically all the people that worked on this screenplay but going back to the foundations of it it, it came from i believe a original um screenplay by zach penn uh who's still working today and is very prolific uh and adam left and was kind of a, a parody or meant to be a parody of kind of buddy cop uh stuff that shane black had done with say uh lethal weapon and that kind of evolved and evolved but you know, an interesting thing, I remember that summer watching another film that came out earlier in the in the year called Loaded Weapon yes. uh, that came out, I believe, in February. And with uh, Abelio Estevez and Samuel L. Jackson kind of very much more directly uh, parodying the uh, Riggs and Murtaugh uh, uh, lethal weapon uh, duo. God, and it that was, movie is so uh, good. That movie is so funny. It's great. The, yeah. That, and, it, and I know that's not what we're talking about, but there's a scene in that movie where uh, Tim Curry is one of the henchmen. The bad guy's played by William Shatner, by the way, which is fantastic. And the henchman's played by Tim Curry, and he's holding the gun to um, to Emilio Estevez's character, and uh, he's Samuel Jackson's like, hey, let him go, let him go. And Tim Curry's like, put down the gun. He goes, I don't have a gun. And he takes a, Tim Curry pulls a gun out, throws it at Samuel Jackson. He goes, pick up the gun. He picks it up, throw down the gun. and it's just like loaded with this stuff and it's uh i had forgotten that first of all that movie was around the same time and i also forgot how 
much better that movie is than last oh yeah Hero. yeah and i've i don't i always uh, my memory i always thought it was like uh an abrams zucker kind of uh production and it wasn't it's a national, uh, it was, it's national lampoons loaded weapon one is the full title yeah and that that was way back when they had started i think National Lampoon had been acquired by that point and started farming out the name National Lampoon mm-hmm. to other films. And I think that was the first time they had done that pretty, I, I thought pretty successfully. I mean, if you're going to attach it to a, to a comedy parody, uh, there, there, this is a pretty good one to go by and also a profitable one. I mean, this, the budget on this was around $8 million. It made $50 million. And so for something that, of the subject matter does a better job of, of parody and comedy than last action action hero does uh, and it's an interesting comparison for sure yeah and that's actually a really good um segue back into last action hero because i in preparing for this was reading an article from starlog magazine which i don't know if you know what that is it's a science fiction magazine and uh it's very very big on star trek and like like that kind of science fiction but they would occasionally do things like on Jurassic Park, actually this issue that Last Action Hero is the cover story for in July 93 issue uh, has a story on, so it's Last Action Hero followed by a story about Jurassic Park followed by a story about the Super Mario Brothers movie to give you a sense of the the range of this thing. But there's a John McTiernan quote in it that really jumped out at me because I think it explains why this, the I like Last Action Hero, but it doesn't work. It just does not work. And this quote from him, I think really, helps explain explain this and he says uh this could not have worked as a parody because parodies only work for about half an hour and then what you were left with what are you left with fortunately we ended up with a really good story a cinderella story about a kid who's detached from the real world because the real world isn't pleasant for him who goes looking for a hero and in a sense a father it's a story that has happened to all of us at one time or another because what happens to danny in this film is all part of growing up now, first of all, I don't know about you, but I've never been sucked into a movie before thanks to a magic ticket. So that's not true. Uh, second of all, a Cinderella story is not exactly what I think John McTiernan thinks a Cinderella story is. Uh, but but the parody thing, he's completely wrong. Like it could have it could totally have worked as a parody because there is Loaded Weapon 1. There's also Hot Shots, which totally works as a parody. And there's the sequel came out that year hot shots part two came, yeah. came out i think a couple months before i think i so, saw i think i saw that and this at the same second run theater in pittsburgh uh because they played like one thing anyway i love that poster with him with uh, charlie sheen holding the uh the bow and arrow with a chicken uh, yeah um but oh, there's also the naked gun series and the police squad show that is based on like all of these things show you that you could do this as a parody and you could do it really well but you need the right people, and I don't think. Well, first of all, John McTiernan is not the right director for a parody. Shane Black's not the right writer for that kind of parody. Like he's shown later through like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and The Nice Guys that he can be really irreverent with this stuff. But those things aren't parodies per se. Um, I mean, and- I'd almost wish wish I could have seen a William Goldman standalone script on doing, even though he did, you know, cleanup work, uh, like. Considering the Princess Bride, you can argue is a little bit of a, a send up of fairy tale stories in a, in a really smart, efficient way as well. Yeah, and I guess it, you know, that's also based on a book that he wrote. Um, so True. you know he's he's coming at that a little bit differently. But it's it's important to note, I think, just to explain that William Goldman got like a million and a half dollars for four weeks of work <laughs> to, to to 
to touch on this up this script and i guess his major contribution is the bad guy which is this guy benedict who's a one-eyed um assassin played by charles dance best part mm. of the movie by far um agree kind of like a, a version of alan rickman in die hard uh but uh yeah william goldman did some script work it went it started with zach uh zach penn and his writing partner and then it went uh Zach Penn and Adam left went to Shane Black and David Arno and then went to John McTiernan who did some work on it which got Shane Black fired and then William Goldman got some money to do it and then it went through all like basically all of Hollywood Carrie Fisher did some some script work on it the guy that wrote Hunt for Red October did some script work on it the joke about it was that it eventually came back to Shane Black uh, to and he when he got the script every page was a different color meant that meaning that every page had been rewritten and mm. when a, when this movie in this movie's case like that's a bad situation in general but this movie was being shot was still being shot like weeks before it was supposed to be released because they were coming up against the this hard release date which they would not change even after Jurassic Park was announced um the hubris at Columbia is just staggering on this um kind of like the stuff the stuff that brought down um United Artists with uh, Heaven's Gate. Like, they should have done that to Columbia, but it, for some reason didn't really. Um, but yeah, everybody, it seems like everybody in Hollywood got got a, a bite of the screenplay. And you can tell, like, it's just, it's just a massive compromise, the movie. Yeah, and there are times that it really stands out, uh, you know, rewatching it recently. Some of the small details you could tell were, were kind of like little insert details. So for instance, when Danny... Uh, opens his front door at the beginning of and of the the film and gets um, basically gets a someone breaks in and t- and makes him um, you know makes him handcuff himself to the bathroom and and you know and comments about how he has nothing in the apartment good to steal and then he Danny goes to the police station and has to file a report. All this takes place in less than an hour. And I was sitting there watching it with my girlfriend and she she mentioned she was like this is the most efficient. New York City Police Department booking and you know uh, take, statement taking and release that she's ever seen <laughs> because they you could tell they they needed something more than just Danny waiting to, for his mom to go to work and then going to the to the movie theater. There's like ah oh, this is this is too boring. We need to punch this up with something else. Well, and it's and it's funny it's funny you mention that because I had a similar reaction while watching it and it was a, but also a little bit different because right before that that dude like breaks into his house his apartment or bursts into his apartment he lives in hell's kitchen i think so it's supposed to be this like like heroin addict or whatever trying to look for stuff to get get some drugs um but right before that happens there's like 40 30 seconds 45 seconds of of danny pretending to study and like watching tv and looking at the clock and the clock is like going by it's a one of those old clocks with the kind of numerals that kind of are on a wheel like it's i don't even know what how, what kind of clock it is it's not a dial clock uh so it's you know you see it go and i thought wait you're really gonna just keep showing this clock him clock him clock him clock like this is ridiculous this is so inefficient as storytelling goes and then it backs him into this corner where they have to have this massive efficiency to show that he gets mugged the cops come in and get him out like, and how did the cops find him? Like, who got there? Uh, who got the cops to show up there? 
then at the police station, and then at the movie theater, and this all happens, yeah, within, like, what? 40 minutes. Yeah. And then and then you follow that that string of events up with a, with probably the biggest ask of for the audience suspension of disbelief of the film which is the magic ticket which apparently like as you mentioned before seems to be a divisive thing among among the writers that worked on this film that the addition of that there's some that originally wanted yeah Danny's transfer to the film world to be unexplained which in retrospect probably would have worked better um however I see why they did it because obviously later on you need something tactile in in the in the reasoning of the film for uh, Benedict to make his leap back into the real world and to start um, you know using freeing up uh, you know uh, other film bad guys again a concept that is not explored as much as it should have been it's 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 hinted at but then he only really uh, frees up intentionally the the villain of the the previous jack slater film yeah and you know that that actually reminds me of who framed roger rabbit because that that's kind of what this is trying to do where like you watch who framed roger rabbit now which is what like late 80s early 90s and you know it's bob hoskins as a human being interacting with toonville or or, toontown and you know it's a whole movie where humans are interacting with with tunes in a world where that's just normal and there are scenes in that movie with like bugs bunny and mickey mouse and you watch it as a kid and you're like that's great and you watch it as an adult you're like how did they get that licensing to work like how did they get that to happen because this is a uh i forget who made the movie but it's it's oh touchdown to so disney so it was they had to get warner brothers to go with it so columbia could have gone to whoever owned the rights to like Jason Voorhees or Michael Myers or whatever to get these other villains to show up. They, instead, they went with the Seventh Seal. Like, yeah, really. Um, but and then like the device, the ticket as a device is fine. Like it, it's just a, a MacGuffin. Like doesn't really matter. But it creates a lot of questions and a lot of problems in terms of your suspension of disbelief. Because the projectionist who got this ticket from Houdini says, oh, it has a mind of its own and whatever. So the, it works for the kid. And then it works for once. And then it works for Benedict all the time. So it's like, all right, so is it just male- malevolent? Does it is it evil? Uh, there was a, a version of the story where the projectionist was supposed to be the devil. Um, hmm. Which would have explained that kind of malevol- malevolence. And that maybe that's a, a, a leftover from all these script drafts. Uh, but it gets you thinking like about the internal logic of the movie, which we can come back to. And like, you're not supposed to think about that stuff. It's supposed to be just a fun kind of taking the piss out of these movies. And instead you're like, but what, wait, what, huh? Who, wait, wait, yeah. you know, wait, you, huh? What? Yeah. I think the better meta commentary comes with a lot, you know, there's some more subtle uh, nods. So, First, it's when they're in the in the the video rental store, and uh, yeah. and Jack Slater sees all the roles that would be Schwarzenegger roles uh, in in his in his world are um, Sylvester Stallone. Yeah. So it's Sylvester Stallone as 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 Terminator. It's a great moment. Yeah. Um, but it, but you know, fast but efficient, and it's it's a it's a good one. Um, 
the other good one, which is a little bit more high-minded, but I thought still works, is uh, Danny's Daydream when he's in English class, uh, taught by Joan Plowright, and her um, fantasy. She's showing a clip of her husband, uh, Lawrence Olivier's uh, version of Hamlet, and of course Danny falls asleep and pictures. What if uh, Jack Slater was Hamlet, and it's then you so get to good. see his mom? It's so yeah. good, and it and it it also like make it so good that you want more of that kind of thing and then if you if you're watching it now and you know about the tv show the critic you just think about the critic like i want more of the critic part of them you know where the fake movies and stuff show up and and uh it's making fun of it but like the the jack slater as hamlet it's the perfect it's exactly what this movie is trying to do we're like it's like something rotten in the state of denmark and Hamlet's taking out the trash. Like, that's perfect. That's a perfect send-up of these movies. But again, it's, it's as as you mentioned before, it's it's part of a slew of kind of half measures that that are kind of are pervasive throughout the throughout the film. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I when I was watching it again, um I I saw it when it was new, or maybe it was second run or whatever in ninety three, and I liked it as a kid. Uh, I remember it being all over the place because the publicity was everywhere. There's like toys and Burger King had cups and stuff. Um, and I watched it again, you know, like 10 years ago or something. And I was like, oh, this is this is good. And, th- and they do things where it's like uh, in Jack Slater 3, in the movie within the movie, the, the first movie within the movie, the bad guy, the Ripper, played by Tom Noonan, uh, who original red dragon bad guy and uh he's got this axe and he throws the axe and it comes at you as if it's going to come out of the screen and actually the movie starts with this kind of weird the screen the screen's black and then from the right side in a diagonal the movie screen that danny's watching kind of smashes into the screen kind of like whips in and and smashes the screen so and then uh, Danny's mother throws her hand out toward the screen, and there's stuff like that where stuff's always coming at you as if it's going to come out of the this, the movie, and they don't really do much with that, which seems like a real lost opportunity. Um, so you know, watching it like ten years ago, I was like, oh, this is kind of really ahead of its time. It's meta. It's it's kind of funny and all this stuff. But watching it now, I still believe all that. Like it's it's ahead of its time and it's meta but i don't the problem with it is that it never it never commits to anything so like i was the movie within the movie jack slater four uh the kid gets into the movie and all of a sudden he's he's in the movie and but it's not like he's in the movie it's like he's in another dimension uh and he's interacting with these characters and you're not supposed to think about it but because the movie gets to be kind of boring in parts, it takes 27 minutes for him for him to get into the movie, which is way too long. Um, because there's all this extraneous stuff to to build up to it, which no one needs. Just just do it. Just get him in there. Um, and then that kind of lackadaisical attitude makes you start thinking about like, well, okay, so he's in the movie, but it's really another dimension. But if he was in a movie, wouldn't it be that the movie was trying to like? purge him from the movie and kind of snap back to the script like 
wouldn't it be something if he was trying to talk to these people and they were just committed to their lines they've been because the whole point of the movie is that he's interacting with characters that are being scripted by Hollywood but they're not being scripted by Hollywood because he's talking to them as if they're people and so none of this this you're not supposed to think about any of this stuff but when you start to get down that rabbit hole you're like oh so wait what that's weird and then when he comes back out of the movie you see, he's in the he's in the theater with Jack Slater who has also come out of the movie with him and you can see the screen and the scene they just left but the movie doesn't continue it's like the the movie has stopped yeah the rules i've that's a good point the rules seem to fluctuate with uh with with no consistency and that's that's something that's really absolutely frustrating i think it as you mentioned before this the, the his inter, danny's initial interaction with the film i thought the most effective part of it was the secret knowledge he's had from watching all the different sequels all the different all the different um, past stuff and that really was interesting because that sets off um, uh, Benedict on on his kind of um, his kind of journey to eventually break through to the other side of the world there. And I want to talk about Benedict for a second. Charles Dance as a, a and I will say I will say just real quick to just sort of put a button sure. on that is uh, that the Benedict character at one point explicitly says if if that little turd can move through parallel worlds and so can I. So yeah, he, he's acknowledging that he's a, he exists in a parallel universe, not in a movie. Whereas the kid is like, you're in a movie. And this guy's like, no, I'm in a parallel world. And it's almost like, okay, well, is it just, he's smarter than the kid or is it that the movie is just dumber than we're supposed to take it? Anyway, I kind of think it's the latter, Dante. Honestly, yeah, I, I, th- I think you're right. Yes, I think you're. I think, right. and again, it's it's a victim of of multiple ideas and false starts and drafts of of what could have been a consistent tone on the rules of the world and the thinking of these characters. Because I'd forgotten about that that moment as well. Is it is it a is it a film or is it a parallel world? Are we talking about the multiverse all of a sudden? But then yeah. also like. When he goes back into the movie, when they all go back into the movie at the end of the movie, well, first, well, spoiler alert, uh, Jack Slater wins, but in the real world, and he kills Benedict in the real world. So Benedict dies, Slater goes back into the movie, and he's changed at the end of the movie. Like he's saying to his boss, who's this kind of grumpy police captain screaming at him, he's like, You're saying this because the Hollywood told you to say it. But then that made me wonder. So. There are thousands of prints of Jack Slater 4 out there. Is he only changed in this one print? Yeah. Like, what? what is this all about? Because then you start to think, like, well, if there are all these prints of this movie, couldn't Benedict have just waited for the movie to come out and go into each of those other scripts, each of those other prints, and pull Benedict out of every one of those to set up, like, a massive fight between one Jack Slater who's too dense to know what to do and let's say 50 Benedicts on the rooftop of a New York oh, Only like, if the film had been directed by the Wachowskis. Otherwise, no. Yeah. Well, that's funny you say that because there's a part in Last Action Hero that points toward The Matrix, which is there's a, a scene set at a funeral, which is the, one of the best scenes in the movie, where uh, the mob boss played by Anthony Quinn, another weirdo cameo, um, is going to blow up the, the family of another of a rival mob and uh, at, at a funeral for this guy, Leo the Fart, who's been stuffed full of nerve gas. 
And uh, <laughs> it's just like, it, that's exactly the kind of absurdity the movie should have more yeah. of. But, but there's a helicopter flying around to patrol this. And then Slater is in a, this kind of like glass line, glass elevator going down the side of a hotel where the hotel, uh, where the funeral is taking place. And the, um, the helicopter opens fire with these machine guns on this thing and it just trashes the building. And it's exactly like a scene in the matrix where, uh, a bunch of stuff gets fired at a building. And, uh, I think Trinity is on hanging off the building and stuff. And I was like, Oh, so this parody, this action parody pointed toward an actual action movie that came out six years later. That's weird. <laughs> and which, you know, just as a little bit of a sideline on, on the matrix as well, some of those, uh, the scenes that take place there, the extreme action scenes, like the, um, like that rescue scene that involves all them going into the building with all the guns and the and the and obviously that that the scene with the helicopter and stuff. I always I remember watching Matrix for the first time and and thinking like this is this is like a lot of this stuff feels like a really refined uh, version of an '80s action film. When they're mm-hmm. not in the real world, when they're in the Matrix world, the stuff that's going on mm-hmm. there and stuff with now that that's, you know, a decade and a half past with, you know, a better budget, better cameras, uh, more, you know, lessons learned, you know, not as 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 kind of uh, not sloppy, but but, you know, off the cuff and, and uh, tactile, because, uh, again, this was the beginning of of uh, digital effects with the Matrix compared to what an 80s film would, would have been. Uh, I. You can you can look at a lot of of the Matrix as as kind of its own kind of send up of of those action movie tropes um, that, that involves you know what's what's Neo's first thing he can have anything that he can dream of guns lots of guns when he wants to <laughs> yeah. that's what it's going to take to rescue this guy um, and that's exactly the kind of world that the machines would have built for a a, a, a culture that they want to placate is just this movie that. It's. I mean, it's a video game, totally. But video games are just action movies. Absolutely. And so, yeah, it it creates this weird kind of feedback loop. But you never question it in the Matrix because it it commits to its own kind of internal logic, and uh, and this never does. And except the only the only reason why I think to bring it back to your point about uh, about Charles Dance and Benedict, the only he's the only character that works. Is he's the only one that feels like anyone's committed anything to it. And that I think is probably because William Goldman wrote mm. it and Charles dances the best actor in the movie. But uh, yeah, I mean, he, he, it's like he's in a, he's from, he's like, he's in another movie sometimes. It feels like it. And I like the fact that I, I don't, he's, he was not a, a name actor at all at that point. You know, he had been in, in no. the only other thing I'd seen him in was alien three, where he has this kind of tragic storyline of, of a, of a doctor who's been sent to this prison planet and has, you know, a, a brief connection with Ripley, but he tells the story of why he's in prison. And I thought that was like one of the more moving parts of that, that film in terms of backstory of the prisoners. Um, and then obviously with game of Thrones really kind of came into his own as a, as a kind of worldwide well-known actor because of the popularity of that show. Um, but you mentioned before, he, he kind of is reminiscent in, in his, the way his swagger, the way he carries himself, and maybe this has to do with being English as well as as the um, main villain Die Hard. Yeah, he has a lot of that Hans Gruber 
sensibility. Like he's refined. He's got nice suits. He's he's got kind of a sense of humor. Um, he's got a beard. Uh, you know, all that, all the sort of like kind of eighties Euro trash, refined Euro trash villain thing that that those movies had. Like that's that's what Benedict is. Except the the twist is like the James Bond thing where he has that one that one weird quirk and that's that he has a glass eye and they do a lot with the glass eye like he says goodbye to somebody and he pulls his sunglasses down he's got a smiley face glass eye um, he, has, he has a freaking when, tie rack of, of glass eyes for for every actually, occasion I, you know what i i don't know if it's a tie rack or a, a rack that has spoons that hold the the eyes yeah because it looked like spoons stuck into a, a stick of wood yeah <laughs> Yeah, his, his you know ro- revolving emotional rotation for whatever the the situation demands of of those things is 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 pretty great. But again, it's another example of of a concept that at least they ran with uh, and and to to flesh out a character that that ended up working. And I'd say also, um, kind you know kind of side by side. I thought Tom Noonan actually worked really well as as um, as the Ripper, as you mentioned before. Mm-hmm. You know he was. Um, in Manhunter, he's the original Red Dragon in that, and uh, in a different kind of take, Michael Mann's take on on that that material. The the, the better take, sure. Yeah, I mean, the, you could uh, the guy who who plays um, who plays uh, what's his name? Uh, great great Scottish actor. Um, oh yeah, Brian Cox is the original Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, and it's made by. It's made by Michael Mann, which is already puts it. It's kind of like a precursor to Miami Vice and sort of its aesthetics. Mm. Um, but Red Dragon, the Brett Ratner version, it just feels like he's parroting um, or ripping off Silence of the Lambs. Mm. And uh, also having old man Anthony Hopkins play a younger version of Anthony Hopkins is just bad all around. Sure. Uh, and also, it's directed by Brett Ratner, so let's not maybe let's just excise this from from the Science of the Lambs conversation. Sure, yeah, and I and again, but but the bottom line being, I thought the the villains in this film were that were were pretty well done. Um, just as you said, it's, it's, when it comes down to structure and use and basically everything else, um, it's it's really tough. But well, I also think. Well, I also think that you know Schwarzenegger gets a bad rap for this movie. Yeah, I wanted to talk uh, about his performance. What's what, what's your take on it? I like it a lot, and I I've always liked it. Um, but I, it has, <laughs> dare I say, pathos uh, because he's got a lot to do. Like he he has to play Jack Slater in the fake in the movie within the movie. He has to play Jack Slater in the real world. He has to play a version of Arnold Schwarzenegger in the real world. And all of these characters are different. And uh, the the Jack Slater you see in the movie world, yeah, he's he's kind of a dim bulb. And he makes these kind of cheesy one-liners. And they're so... They're, the, my favorite one is when he blows up an ice cream truck during a chase. And the ice cream truck uh, shoots out an ice cream cone that has a full full thing of ice cream on it and and it hits a guy in the back of the head and kills him and he says uh ice that guy cone a phrase which is <laughs> I, I love it i love that line um but he you know, he, he's just playing a version of that character that he's played before um but then it gets sort of cycled through the 
the kind of family goofball that he plays in like kindergarten cop or jingle all the way um which both are good for what they are i mean they're like i'm not going to see them for the godfather i'm going to see them because it's Arnold Schwarzenegger being weird yeah. and it was and i think kindergarten cop was one of only before this two cop roles that he had played and there's the other one that i seen which is kind of forgotten now is a film called red heat which he did with jim belushi yeah. who also has a random cameo in this film uh, at at yes, the premiere, it does. Uh, yeah, Schwarzenegger made a lot of calls to his friends to to show up. It really movie. feels like it. Um, yeah, yeah, and but but when he gets into the real world, when Jack Slater gets into the real world, and he, you see him experience life, basically, like he has this moment where he's listening to classical music in Danny's apartment, and you can just see like Arnold Schwarzenegger is tapping into something like in his life for how classical music impacts him and it just really that feels really good and it feels really natural and it feels kind of earned and then he sees he goes to the premiere to stop the ripper from killing the quote-unquote real arnold schwarzenegger uh and they ha they have a scene together where schwarzenegger as slater meets schwarzenegger as schwarzenegger and schwarzenegger schwarzenegger's like oh you you're the best lookalike i've ever seen you should come to hollywood i'll get you all these jobs and Slater says, I don't want anything to do with you. you. You've brought me nothing but pain. And I thought, I've always thought that that line was like way deeper, way more um, impactful than people maybe give her credit for. Because there is like some amount of Schwarzenegger grappling with who he is on screen with who he is in real life and the perception people have of both of those things. And not every actor can do that when they try. It kind of becomes, can be weird. Like Marlon Brando would try some stuff like that and it would just get weird. Mm. And, um, but well, you know, who also has a, has a, a um, brief cameo on that red carpet is Jean-Claude Van Damme. And I remember yes. seeing JCVD when it came out and there was that, that famous moment where, the film basically stops and he's in, I believe, a kind of a, a cherry picker seat that rises above all the action below him. And he has a kind of monologue to the screen about about what what this moment in the film. But really, this moment for him, the actor, considering his whole life leading up to this has meant and it got a lot of notice because of that. But again, that takes mm -hmm. that's a monologue takes whatever a couple of minutes compared to again the efficiency of a moment of a of, of one line of dialogue that hints at this kind of stuff. And I, honestly, I I was when that that moment between the two of them, it kind of reminded me a little bit of Total Recall of oh, of yeah. that kind of thing of there's what are you doing with my body that I'm not doing? You know, like I've I'm the one who has to to go through all this this uh this pain and fear and 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 threats to my life and you get to enjoy all the good things about it you know the the idea that you know and then you mentioned him playing up those of who he was that cultural moment i like the uh the little moment where his real life wife at that time maria shriver is telling him not to plug planet hollywood <laughs> uh which uh which again you know kind of belies the itself was an interesting thing because it it just in this film as we mentioned before they 
they know uh, the friendly rivalry between him and Sylvester Stallone. I think there are more people out there who wanted that rivalry to be a little bit more intense than it was. I mean, there were freaking business partners mm-hmm. in a cheesy Hollywood restaurant, uh, him and Bruce Willis uh, together. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. They, they, yeah, I agree that that his casting made certain things and his humor and that that Schwarzenegger can bring uh, made that certain things possible, certain moments possible that wouldn't have been possible with other with other people of less cultural standing uh, at that time. Yeah, and it took a lot of those other guys a long time to get to a point where they felt comfortable t- enough to not only be self-referential but be self-critical of of who they are you know, on screen, uh, there's a, a, there's a real brief moment in Loaded Weapon 1 where, uh, this house on the beach gets blown up by the bad guys and Bruce Willis emerges from it and they're like, you're looking for the place to, and he's clearly playing like a John McClane type of character and he's only in it for 30 seconds, but that's a far cry from making a whole movie where you're just making fun of yourself. Um, the, the self-awareness that that takes, I think, like Arnold Schwarzenegger as a person has a lot of problems. Uh, he's also got a lot of stuff, you know, going for him, and it's good that he, that he's in the world. Like his um, his the stuff that he did on has done on Twitter throughout the pandemic, and then after the uh, insurrection at the Capitol, I think was exactly what kind of our culture needed. Mm. Um, at the same time, he had a kid out of wedlock with his maid, and like that's. This guy contains multitudes, you know, um, and you see that in his roles. And he tried to be serious, like he made collateral damage in 2001 or whatever it was. And that movie with uh, Gabriel Byrne about Satan worshippers or something. I forget what it's End called. End of days. End of days. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so he tried other things, but, you know, he's he's always been more interesting, I think, than people than, than the culture has wanted to to acknowledge. Because it's easy for American culture to turn this Australian bodybuilder with a really thick accent into kind of a buffoon. Oh, yeah. And, I, th- I think Bill Burr had and, a great riff on it right around the time of the, the news about the child out of wedlock with the maid came out. And he's, he's talking about what a great man. This, this, how dare I ever, all, I, mean, just, I can't do the Bill Burr voice, but he did a great summary <laughs> of that. This great man who became a bodybuilder. Came went to the top of that world, and what's he want to do next? He wants to be an America. He wants to be a movie star in America, and he can't even speak the language. And this great man, he did it anyway. <laughs> he rose to the top <laughs> as this, you know, as, as of the uh, you know the world's most famous uh, movie star. And what he what he wanted to do next? He wanted to become governor, governor of the state of California. You know, it's like going through it, and it, it really. You're right. He's he's a great personal personal story, but. But even if you, you know, going back to watching Pumping Iron, it became very, very evident, even you know, back then on screen, that this guy had that it factor. He had he had the swag. He has a certain kind of swagger and presence, uh, but but also savviness, business savviness. And I, this yeah. is a good jumping off point to the other kind of creative side of this film and the fate of someone else, uh, John McTiernan who had a very, Oof, very yeah. rapid ascent. And here's something I always forget. John McTiernan, when when Predator was made in, in uh, 87, was only 36. He he was hmm. not an old guy at, at, at all. For some reason, maybe it's just the way he looks. I assume he was a decade older than he was. 
Um, yeah, he does look. I saw these pictures from the making of Last Action Hero. He does look like a really old guy. Yeah, maybe that's just hard, hard Hollywood like, living. Who knows? You know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he had to talk about it in a quick succession. I mean, it was amazing year after year. Predator, Die Hard, Hunt for Red October, eh, Medicine Man. Okay, uh, but <laughs> you know, then he has this, and then he after this a couple of years, his comeback from this was Die Hard with a Vengeance. So he, yeah. it was. It was a kind of a charmed existence in in a lot of ways for for even when this uh, even when the hits weren't there, but that which may be why he thought he could get away with spying. And on let me tell you, talk about a way to end. I mean, and here's here one quick note on on this last action hero won him a Razzie for worst director, as hmm. uh, which is kind of like it's a bad you know, I don't know if it's Razzie worthy. It's a mess. But there must have been other, and I guess, you know, like, talk about, you can argue about the consistency of the Razzies compared to whether it's not a little bit of, you know, high profile, uh, you know, shaming at times in terms of who they want to uh, label with the, with that stuff. I think because of the disaster of marketing of this film, because of, of it, it lost a little bit of money, that that was, that was kind of not such a far stretch for them to give it. You fast forward again, like a decade later, he's doing the remake of Rollerball. That movie yeah. deserved to get him. It was, I think, got him worst director and worst remake. Uh, I don't want to go off on a, too much of a tangent about the about the Razzies, but I interviewed the guy that created the Razzies for Story sure. once, and uh, that that thing it just took on a life of its own. Like it was created as like a party game with him and his friends, mm. and it just got a, the the culture just wanted some sort of countervalence to the Academy Awards. And so they threw all this, you know, attention behind the Razzies and the Razzies could have fun with it, especially when celebrities who got them like big A-listers would, would show up to the ceremony. Like Halle Berry, I think showed up to get her, her award for Catwoman. She did. And, and, Ad- admirably. Um, that was a great moment. Yeah. But, it, but it, you're right. Like the Razzies are just, they're fun, but they're not, they're not nefarious the way the Golden Globes are nefarious. Mm. Yeah. You know, I agree. They're, they're just, they're just this fun thing. And, and, and it's the the thing with the Razzies is they they tend to take the the easy pot shot because that's just what they that's just what it is. And so Last Action Hero, like Rollerball, it's just an easy Rollerball is more uh, sh, uh, open and shut case. Oh yeah, and he but, by um, the way he won the quote unquote one lost the Razzie for that one. He was only nominated <laughs> for for the Razzie for worst director oh, for okay. Last Action. Right. So yeah uh but do you think he brought did he do you think he brought the razzie with him when he went to jail god i hope so um just looking at the details of 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 the case itself do you yeah you should you should explain how he how this all went so so basically the last film that john mctiernan has made was 2003's i mean we're talking about full-length film i think he's been involved in some shorts also working for some video game companies as well but we're talking about theatrical films is is 2003's basic around uh, shortly after this time he got caught up in an incredibly uh, messy uh, investigation that had to do with a private investigator named Anthony Pelicano, who he had uh, hired to, apparently, to wiretap the phones of the producers of Rollerball to <laughs> to get a to get an insight to what they were the, their communications with the studio. Um, and this got tied up also in in um, the 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 kind of disillusion of McTiernan's marriage 
uh, whether or not he he used Pelicano for that as well. Um, regardless, this this all ended up in in court over the next decade and would result in uh, McTiernan having to go to go to prison, as well as going as filing for bankruptcy. And what happened? Was it federal? It was federal prison, wasn't it? Yeah, I believe he went to federal uh, white collar. Um, up in the, the Dakotas, <laughs> it was, yeah, yeah I, I think it was, all, all things considered, was, it could have been a hell of a lot worse. He could have been, you know, it wasn't like he went to Supermax in Colorado there. He went to uh, something called um, the fe- the federal present sorry, the federal prison camp in Yankton, South Dakota. So, you know, but it, it came with a, with a, with repercussions, you know, the guy became kind of persona non grata. And he's done interviews subsequent to getting released, but when he was negotiating his um, hmm. his his bankruptcy, his argument was that he would that he would be able to eventually pay off his debts by being a working director, and he had all these plans, and he had been writing a film in in while he was incarcerated, and you know promises promises. It hasn't worked out, and he has kind of been, it seems, whether you want to call it blacklisted, I almost feel like for, for the kind of stuff that he was pulling, karma-wise, I think it's more of just, you know, he got karma back on him instead of just getting, you know, not getting to go back to to the uh, lifestyle and, and prestige and, mm-hmm. and in demand that he had been. I still think he's a hell of a, I mean, oh, yeah. the, the films that even his, his non- um, hit films. There's some that I, I really like. I think he's talented for sure. You know, I, I really like the, I like the film like the Thirteenth Warrior, which was an ad, a great adaptation of. Well, it was an adaptation of, a, of I thought a great Crichton short story. Um, again, there was it was, a, it was a, uh, the film version. Having read the book version, there were there were certain compromises they had to make. For instance, having these uh, Neanderthal cavemen in the book, it's, it's, they make a point of the fact that they don't use any modern things like horses. Yeah. They just kind of are, are supernaturally, you know, physically able, they, they're on foot everywhere they go. But of course they have to, for the film, put them all on horses so that they're, you know, cause it's, that's for the cinematic kind of prestige of it. But, but again, like the Thomas Crown affair in 99 was great. It was, it was a great film and, and made a profit. You know, it was a very abrupt fall for McTiernan, and he had a string of a string of hits. Not not very prolific. I think it's maybe a, a you know ten films. Uh, that but you know, there's a lot of of uh, film directors we don't re- the, that we remember just as much who don't have that that much uh, content. And he's still old enough, young enough to work, but he's on the outs. The McTiernan case shows us exactly where Hollywood's red line is in terms of who's employable and who's not. Cause, uh, Hollywood gives a lot of second chances to a lot of creeps. And I bet if Harvey Weinstein got out of jail today, they give him another shot at making stuff. But I guess wiretapping your producers to see if your crappy remake is going to get punished or what, or whatever they were going to do. I guess that's a bridge too far. Agreed. Um, and finally, let's let's finish up by talking about another film that was released in 1993 that really kind of marked a transition in terms of big budget films and action films. Jurassic Park. It comes it comes out a week before Last Action Hero, as you've as you've mentioned, and just dominates. And it 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 hits with audiences. And 
obviously you have sequels, but it has left a longer lasting impact than it, it's, it's kind of, cl- and it is closer in kind of, if you're looking for waypoints on the evolution of the action film, there's Die Hard. And then there's, you can argue that the next one to really change the games five years later is is Jurassic Park. Yeah, I mean, Jurassic Park had the same, it's really like Spielberg's um, second Jaws moment. Because when Jaws came out, the book was based on that really popular book and people were excited for it. But no one really expected the guy who made that TV movie about the truck to to make, you know, anything like the cultural phenomenon that Jaws became. And same thing with Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park, based on a hugely popular book, also by Michael Crichton, uh, he was coming off of uh, Hook, I think, which was a flop, and no one really expected much. And so the little bit I was reading about this, the dynamic between these two films, no one at Columbia took Jurassic Park seriously. Other people in Hollywood did. They are like oh, no, this is going to be a game changer. But people in Columbia are like, it doesn't have Schwarzenegger. It's not going to launch a rocket with the name of the movie into space, is it? And then Jurassic Park, so they they didn't move their date. Uh, June 18th was when Last Action Hero came out. Jurassic Park came out June 11th. They refused to move the date. Jurassic Park comes out. It blew them away. Last Action Hero opened at number two in the box office. Uh, with $15 million that weekend. Jurassic Park was still number one at $38 million. It made something like 60 or 70 or something like that, like a lot the first weekend. And yeah, it spun off all these movies, but it also created this new paradigm of what a tentpole uh, movie was in Hollywood. And this isn't, this is a not a perfect analogy, but it, I was thinking about it in terms of like, there was all this hair metal and music and then Nirvana came and hair metal was dead and it created this new paradigm in music. And if you look at it that way, again, this is, this is a really blunt metaphor, but Jurassic Park is the Nirvana to last action heroes, hair metal. And it kind of, kind of works because last action hero has a really hair metal-y soundtrack, but, um, but it's, it's also kind of, a way to put how badly people misjudge these things into perspective. Cause in that same star log article from 93, uh, John McTiernan says he didn't feel like the fun that's poked at in this movie signals the final nail in the coffin of the action film. Mm. It kind of did kind of, I, I mean, there were still movies like that being made and now they still get made like uh, the expendables, but they're all either shells of that, that version of that the, the kind of money doesn't get poured into it the way they used to. Uh, and the, the audience is not global. I mean, I mean, it is global in the, in the sense that like China wants it to see it, but it's not like, um, people are going to rush out to see the expendables five the mm. way they, the way they would have seen rush out to see like Rocky five or yeah. predator the, two the, or whatever. They've, they've evolved. I mean, that, that, I think that was kind of just judging by his tone in that, that article. I think they got, kind of arrogant about how easy it was to kind of replicate this formula again and again uh, and that you know something was inevitably going to change and give you know the fickle tastes of the American or you know worldwide but primarily the American uh, cinematic market something new to get to get 
um, excited by. And, you know, Spielberg had done it before with Jaws. Yeah, and I don't know if you, when the last time you saw Jurassic Park was, but when the last Jurassic World movie came out, I was watching the trailer for it, and I was like, these, these special effects don't look that great. Maybe they're not, they're, they're, maybe they're just not finished, because it's, you know, it's going to be a few months before the movie comes out. And so I went back and watched some Jurassic Park, and those special effects are now almost, what, 30 years old. Mm. And they are still fantastic. Like, they look so good. And you watch Last Action Hero, and the special effects are so bad. There's a part where <laughs> Danny is on a, on a, in the movie, within the movie, he's on a bike, and he, like, kind of go ramps up, up, off of these rooftops, and he's in front of a giant moon, and they play this version of the E.T. theme song. And it's like, all you did was take a, you drew a kid on a bike and then you did like a matte shot thing on a, it's like, it looks gross. Like it's mm. like, I, I wanted my five bucks back from Amazon for, for, <laughs> for having to sit through those bad spots. And then there's like a, uh, there's a shot where like a bunch of TNT comes flying through the air and you're like, what is this? Like who, who did this? And again, it goes back to that idea of like, where did this money go? Like it, it costs $85 million, but when you watch Terminator 2, like, you know where that money went. Like, it went to the liquid metal guy, and it went to the great ch- chases, and it went to all that stuff. You know, it's just, this just wasted its entire special effects budget. And then to come on the heels of not only the most consequential big budget movie of the last 30 years, maybe, arguably, uh, at least since Jaws, well, at least in Star Wars, I guess, Um to follow that up, which is a special effects bonanza with a special effects dumpster fire, is like you're not going anywhere with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also uh, for the budget that it had, following up on you know coming in the wake of more directly of two films by the brothers Estevez, who probably did the material better on a lower budget and funnier and more mm-hmm. engaging. Uh, so I guess what I'm saying is, for those listening, check out Loaded Weapon One and, and Hot Shots Part Two. Yeah, they're they're well worth your time. Yeah, uh, you, for those you, of a younger generation who haven't seen them yet. Yeah, if you're into action parodies, give give Last Action Hero a watch. It's it's an interesting curiosity. Uh, it works in some ways, definitely doesn't work in other ways. But yeah, the better ones are Loaded Weapon, Hot Shots, but also Naked Gun. The first Naked Gun movie is mm. is so funny. And the Police Squad show, uh, there's like six episodes of Police Squad or something that preceded it. It's it's one of the best comedies ever made, uh, Police Squad. And yeah, there's you could do a lot better than Last Action Hero. I agree. Well, on that note, great recommendations, Dante. It was a pleasure talking with you about uh, Last Action Hero. We're going to have to do this again soon. Yeah, I hope so. And hopefully with a movie that doesn't um, blow up in our face. Agreed.
This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at osirispod.com.